ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West on RN and ABC Listen. This is one of the most popular movements in Taiwan. About 10 million Taiwanese follow, in some way, the Matsu folk religion. There's 12,000 temples across the country and its networks stretch into business and politics. So it shouldn't be surprising that China's communist government has a particular interest in this movement. During Taiwan's recent election campaign, Beijing allegedly tried to use the religion to influence voters. Matsu also has several million followers in the Chinese province of Fujian. Dr Mark Harrison is a Taiwan specialist at the University of Tasmania. Matsu is a deity. Matsu was actually a real person about a thousand years ago, a lady called Lin Monyang, and she has become deified, and she is the goddess of the sea. And she is worshipped as the goddess of the sea, and Taiwan, of course, is an island, and so subject to typhoons and so on, and so... Worshipping a goddess of the sea has become over many centuries part of seafaring life in Taiwan. And around the goddess of the sea has emerged a set of religious practices focused on temples. There are many Matu temples in Taiwan. There's many around the world. There's one in Melbourne, actually, in which the goddess Matu is worshipped. There isn't a canon of sort of sacred texts that support her, although there is some writing. So it's not like Buddhism or Taoism or indeed Christianity. The Buddhists and the Taoists do rather look down upon the worshippers of Matu a little bit. But around these temples in which Matu is worshipped, a really rich and complex set of cultural, social and spiritual practices has developed over many centuries. Mark, why would the Chinese government be interested in the followers of Matsu? The worship of Matsu is very institutionalized. So the temples are really huge organizations, some of them. They are, they're large buildings and, and structures. Some of them are, are multi-million dollar operations. And the Chinese government is very interested in institutions that are outside of its control. And it has a concept, a set of political tactics and practices called United Front Work, in which it seeks to capture or, or influence or insert itself into those institutions. The temples that worship Matsu are certainly not the only institutions that Beijing directs its attention at, but there is a very large number of, of people who go to them and they're considered, I think, by Beijing a receptive to influence and a united front activity because Matsu is also worshipped in Fujian, mm. in China, on the other side of the Taiwan Strait. So there is that commonality. And the original, the, the deity Matsu was from Fujian originally, a thousand years ago. It's a receptive set of institutions, and Beijing is always interested in those and, and trying to find ways to uh, to co-opt and shape and influence. And it has obviously the long-term goal of shaping public discourse in Taiwan to be more favourable towards unification. Mm. I mean, this may not be full-blown espionage as we understand it, you know, planting spies in Taiwan's defence ministry, but how much is China and the Chinese government basically trying to infiltrate the Mazu movement? Infiltrate is probably not the word that I would use. It sees that the commonality in Fujian and Taiwan around the worship of Mazu is an opportunity 
And it has been working quite hard over the last, in fact, many years to make the worshippers of Matsu feel more favorable towards China. And so that's really the goal. And it's a very complex set of institutional practices. Yes, it's not really espionage in the traditional spycraft sense. China obviously directs enormous resources at Taiwan's military and defense industries and so on, and foreign affairs in a more traditional sense. But it sees the kinds of people who worship Matsu as the kinds of people that it wants to influence so that they feel more comfortable with unification, ultimately. I would say that it's not effective. And all politicians in Taiwan go to the temples as part of their political activities. So certainly during the election campaigns, you know, every other day they're going to a temple to do bye-bye and, uh, and show their respect for the deities. But the range of views in Taiwan's politics is, is great. You know, the new vice president, for example, of Taiwan, Xiaobi Kim, she's quite a serious Christian. And although she will certainly go to a temple, it's not part of her own set of beliefs. But I think Beijing would uh, assess that worst case from their point of view is division within Taiwan's public life, you know, with the, the Matsu's uh, worshippers feeling one way and Taiwan's political elites feeling another way. And even that kind of division suits their particular interest. If they can sow a degree of division within Taiwanese politics and society, that makes it easier for them to influence Taiwan in ways that they want. Is this an East Asian parallel to what Russia is accused of doing in the West, <laughs> effectively trying to play a, a very strong influence game in Western politics? Is, is this, uh, as I say, a, an East Asian parallel? I think Russia's contemporary activities are much more focused on cyber security issues and social media. With China, it's, there's a lot of that sort of stuff as well, and certainly a lot of activities in social media. But this is about institutions, institutions and organizations. And this is where United Front Work really thinks it the most deeply about how to shape an institution. This has a very long history. It does have a history in the Soviet Union. So this is a, a Leninist political practice, but it's one that the Chinese Communist Party took up in the 1920s and 30s and have developed into a huge set of organizations and structures in the Chinese system that is directed at this particular activity. It's not just Matsu, it's not just Taiwan. This is a widespread set of practices that China engages in. And the principle is the Chinese Communist Party is a revolutionary party. When it was founded in the 1920s, it was in a struggle for its own survival. And part of the ways it responded to that was to think about how to get organizations that were outside the party to be kind of on the party's side, at least supportive of, or at least not oppositional to. And United Front Work is a set of ideas and practices and organizations that implement that goal. The Communist Party is not trying to destroy the worship of the god Matsu, even though China's leaders would not be particularly interested in it as a religious practice, but they want to make sure that it isn't oppositional to their interests in any way. Yes, because one of the many things that you've said that I found intriguing is that the Matsu movement also has a following, a very large following in Fujian province on the Chinese mainland as part of the People's Republic of China. Could the Chinese government be thinking maybe the Taiwanese through the Matsu movement could destabilise us? Maybe they're thinking this is a rearguard action. I don't think so. There's a certain sort of imperial mindset in Beijing that feels that it does the destabilizing, it doesn't get destabilized. Right. There is an anxiety, I think, about um, 
opposition within China about protest movements and so on, but the state is so pervasive in China that it has the capacity to suppress that if it needs to. I don't think that would be the case. I think if there was a post-unification scenario, if that ever happened, then I think that would be actually quite an interesting dynamic, see how that influence would work in both directions. But where we are at the moment, unification is not uh, really on the cards. And so um, I don't think that would be the thought. It's also the case that Beijing has been interested in Mazu for quite a while. Uh, Xi Jinping gave a speech about 10 years ago where he talked about the people in Fujian and the people in Taiwan both worshipping the goddess Mazu, and maybe this could be a, a, a way that they could find a, a common connection. But this is someone who himself never dreamed of going to a temple and actually participating himself in any of those practices like the pilgrimages and so on. Uh, he's just not that kind of political leader. Mm. And there was a quite an interesting and, and in many ways very strange policy statement that was released last year yes. by the State Council and the Politburo, so the government and the party, a joint statement, which proposed a set of initiatives to help integrate Fujian and Taiwan. A lot of it was focused on business integration. Legal integration was another one where they proposed that Taiwanese lawyers might be able to actually practice in Fujian, which obviously is not acceptable to the Taiwanese. But one of the themes in that document was cultural integration. And a great deal was made of the shared heritage of, of the worship of the goddess Matsu, and that is an area that they proposed mm. would be a pathway towards cultural integration. Mark, just finally, a contemporary of yours, a Taipei-based scholar, Dr. Chang Kui Min, said that Beijing is increasingly using religious lineages to uphold the unification narrative. Do I understand that the officially atheist communist government of China somehow sees some value in invoking the idea of a divine purpose for the unification of China and Taiwan. I mean, are they using religion in that sort of bald a way? That's an interesting idea, I think, because there is this idea of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. There is a kind of divine tone to a lot of the discourse from Beijing about unification. It's this great national mission that will fulfill the destiny of all Chinese people. It's spoken about in these very elevated terms. But I think for Beijing, there is no sense that people in the government itself and the leadership, the, the senior leadership, who live very, very isolated lives. There may be possibly some closet worshippers of the goddess Maozu in Beijing somewhere in the senior leadership, and it's, it's not unimaginable. And Xi Jinping himself, of course, was governor of Fujian, and so he may have had some encounters with those practices when he was in that role. But for the senior leadership, no, they're very technocratic. They're very ideological in the sense of their belief in communism and the, the ideology of the party. This, for them, is a mechanism to be used. I don't think it's really a, a genuine engagement with what the practices actually mean. Mm. It's a lever to be pulled. If you're uh, running a small temple in southern Taiwan, worshipping the goddess Mazu, and then somebody from Fujian says, well, why don't you come to Fujian and then come to our temple and we'll pay for everything? You might say, well, that sounds like quite a nice deal. And so you go there and you're, you're interested in it. That over time, that's what United Front Web looks like. It mm. might make you feel warmer towards Fujian. But ultimately, I think there's a, a good understanding in Taiwan that 
There is a very particular goal that Beijing has, which the people of Taiwan don't support. And this is not going to really shape public opinion fundamentally. It might create division. Dr. Mark Harrison, Taiwan expert. He's based at the University of Tasmania. Mark, thanks for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Not at all. Thanks very much for the opportunity to talk about it. And this is the program where you'll hear about the links between religion, ethics and the news that's shaping the world. South Australia could soon become the next state to fully decriminalise prostitution or sex work. The advocates of full decriminalisation have many allies in Parliament, especially in the Labor and Green parties. But one survivor of this trade is urging politicians to rethink their support for legalisation. Rose Hunter spent a decade in the sex industry. She's the author of the book Body Shell Girl. And this week, Rose wrote an open letter to South Australian MPs on the ABC Religion and Ethics website Now, there's nothing explicit in this conversation, but there is one reference to sexual assault. It was 10 years all up, which still shocks me uh, to say these days. It seems like a long time. It wasn't my intention, however. Definitely when I first got into the industry, it was supposed to be a uh, temporary fix, as I called it, to pay my rent. And that was in Canada. My uh, experience in the industry was mostly in Canada. I come from a middle-class family, but I was in the position of having no money. (laughs) So my story is a bit different from uh, some others in the industry in that I did come from a middle-class background, as I mentioned. I wasn't underage. I started at the ripe old age of 25, and I had a BA degree before I started in the industry. So I had a lot of these comparative advantages. However, I had a lot of uh, emotional problems. We'd call them mental health issues these days, I guess, including a particularly bad eating disorder and quite a few issues going on. I left Australia. I gathered together the money that I had for a ticket out of Australia to Canada on a year's working visa where I hoped to sort of get away from myself. And when I got there, I got a a retail job, as was my intention, but then I lost that job. And then I was faced with paying rent and I had no money to pay it with. So that was the background. How hard was it, Rose, to exit prostitution? So extremely hard for me. (laughs) That was my experience. The reasons why it was extremely hard to get out that was actually why I wrote the book, because for a long time I felt actually baffled as to why I had stayed in it for so long. I was pretty dissociated from my own experience and I felt like I really couldn't work it out. That was sort of the impetus to write the book, to work out what happened. Like, why did I stay in this industry for 10 years? certainly wasn't because I I liked it so much. As I mentioned, I had all these issues, including some trauma going into the industry. And one thing that happened early on in in the industry that I uh, mentioned in the article was being raped in in a brothel, as well as the feeling that that wasn't so far different to the rest of the experience in that Mm. brothel. And so I became traumatised by the industry, not just that rape, the everyday reality of the industry is traumatising. And so you get in sort of a vicious cycle. Meanwhile, the gaps in your resume don't get any better. My self-worth, which was never too good to begin with, took a further 
dive. And I got in the position where I really didn't think that I could do anything else. Then I became an alcoholic. Then I became addicted to uh, sedatives. So it just became this mess of problems, you know, and every one of those problems feeds onto itself and makes you more likely to go back into the industry. When you hear this slogan, I guess it is, from advocates of fully legalised prostitution that, quote, we need rights, not rescue, what do you think? Well, I needed rescue. <laughs> I know that's not a popular thing to say these days. Yeah, well, why um, isn't it popular? Certainly, if you'd come to me at the time and said, would you like rescuing? I probably wouldn't have taken too kindly to that. But there's this push to act as though there are no harms to women and girls in this industry, which I hope my article went some way towards showing that is not the case. I think when most people think about this issue and think about what is realistically involved in working in a brothel, which I won't go into the details here, but listeners can imagine or they can find it in my article, most people would say, well, that sounds pretty harmful, just on a sort of common sense level. Mm. But then we have these messages that we're being fed, supported a lot of the time by cherry picking a woman in the industry who is doing very well and highlighting that story as though it's typical when it's really an exceptional story and for the vast majority of women it's a, a trauma industry I describe it as. Yeah. Surely though, Rose, there are women who choose sex work or prostitution quite freely. I mean, I'm quite sure that I've read stories of the 30-something woman who's doing escort work while completing her PhD. She's telling us how empowered she is. I'm pretty sure I've read stories like that. I didn't meet anyone uh, like that in my uh, 10 years in the industry. I can say that. Certainly, there are some women who have more choice within this industry for various reasons, like maybe they have another form of income as well and they can pick and choose their uh, sex buyers, which would certainly lessen the trauma. So these women undoubtedly exist, but I would say they're a very small minority. And the problem is the reality of the industry is so much different to the majority of the women in it. So it really does a disservice and is really inaccurate to highlight these stories, even though they undoubtedly make uh, for sexier sort of content. Doesn't the full decriminalisation of prostitution make it safer? At least according to the advocates, they say that sex workers are no longer ashamed, so they'll go to the police if their rights are violated. Because of the nature of this work, in inverted commas, or unacceptable work, you could call it, this work is by nature unsafe and there really isn't anything that decriminalisation of it can do to make it safer. If you do think about what's involved, there is the possibility for disease that is present and it's decriminalisation can't remove that. When you look at the levels of PTSD, for instance, in women in the sex industry, there's been a number of studies on this and they're really unacceptably high. 
Um, well, yeah, post-traumatic problem. stress disorder, there's actually a really quite shocking comparison. Quite a few studies compare it to uh, combat veterans. And there was actually a piece at the uh, conversation a few years back that says a sex worker and a soldier walk into a therapist's office who has more chance of having PTSD. It's some title like that. And, of course, the answer is the sex worker by quite a wide margin, according to that article. You have to be a bit careful because some of these studies are done with uh, street workers and some of them are done with in-house workers and there may be a difference in trauma levels between those two groups. But it does seem overwhelming that uh, whatever percentage we affix to it, that it's high and it's unacceptable. Why is it so hard, Rose, to get your voice and voices like your, yours heard in this debate? Because the trajectory in this country is very much towards full decriminalisation. New South Wales, Victoria, I think Queensland's heading that way. There's certainly a proposal in South Australia, which is what prompted you to write this piece. Why is it so hard for you to get your voice heard? That's one answer contained in your question. The trajectory is is heading towards full decriminalisation. And they don't want to talk to survivors because we might say something that might question the value of uh, that trajectory. I mean, mostly what I get told when I get told to be quiet is that I'm no longer in the industry, so these laws don't affect me anymore. That was part of the reason I wanted to write my article too, to say survivors have a voice and experience that should be heard And we listen to survivors regarding a wide range of issues, for instance, domestic abuse survivors. You don't have to currently be in a violent relationship to have an opinion about domestic violence. And the other reason, which I think is really, really important, is uh, if you had asked me back in the day when I was in the industry, hey, Rose, is this industry okay with you? I probably would have said, yeah, it's fine. It's how I'm getting my money. You know, I would have said something along the lines. I wasn't going to tell you it was empowering or anything like that because it clearly wasn't. But I would have probably just said, it's all right. What else was I going to do? What else was I going to say? And also when you're in the middle of a trauma situation, and this is true for a, a wide variety of trauma, including domestic abuse survivors and survivors of childhood abuse, it's very, very difficult to see the whole picture when you're in that situation and often people who are in trauma situations in abuse situations they sort of realize years later that they were even in one or how bad it was you know Mm. and that was the case for me when it's up close when it's in your face every day it's very difficult to see accurately so I believe that's the survivor perspective that we can offer some perspective on the situation. In your essay, Rose, you describe people who frankly don't seem to be very sympathetic to your pain. What sort of things did they say to you, almost dismissively, Mm. (laughs) about the nature of the work that you were doing and the anguish that was associated with it in your case? One of the things that I have noticed since I came out with this story is a certain level of callousness towards my experiences. I'm not saying, oh, well, people should have this and that empathy for me or anything like that. But I do find it interesting and I find it interesting that it comes particularly from the left 
And a comment that I get quite often, which blows my mind on a regular basis, is some comment like, oh, well, I guess the industry must have been like working at Coles. Yeah, and it hasn't just happened once. It's quite shocking. I sort of know what I would like to say to that, maybe like, well, if, if you don't know the difference, I'm sure I can't tell you. But I think that analysis comes from people saying, oh, well, we're analysing it as a, as a service industry position now. So they're making this comparison. And just because it might have some small thing in common, like it involves customer service, they're saying there must be some large similarities between mm. the two things, which seems to me a very extraordinary claim to make. You support something called the Nordic model, which actually does decriminalise partially the sex industry. It doesn't make a criminal of the woman or in some cases the man who is selling sex. What does it do? As you said, it's a partial decriminalisation model rather than full decriminalisation. The sex seller, whatever gender they may be, is decriminalised and the sex buyer is held accountable, various penalties, whether they be fines or however it's worked out. And also criminalised are uh, pimps. And the other important thing that the Nordic model does is it offers what they call exit services for people, again, mostly women, because this industry is heavily gendered. Most sex sellers are women and girls and most sex buyers are men offering exit services to the mostly women. And that's a really important aspect of the model. It would have meant a lot to me if I ever saw an exit service during my time in the industry. It would have given me the message, I think, that um, maybe I, I was deserving of such a thing, you know, and, and that this wasn't all okay, which is sort of all I heard in the popular culture, you know, that it was my choice so, um, and it was all okay. You do quote in your essay the British feminist uh, Julie Bindel. She says, abolitionists have a goal to bring about an end to the global sex trade and to inhabit a world where no woman, man or child is prostituted, a world where sex acts are not bought, sold or brokered. Why does this sound so crazy to so many people? Well, why does it sound so crazy to so many people? Yeah, <laughs> Uh, that's a really good question, I think. It's been so culturally dominant, this idea that the industry isn't the way it actually is. Calling it sex work instead of prostitution is, is one sort of aspect of that. There's this real push to uh, legitimise the industry and sanitise it. So we don't talk about pimps anymore. We talk about managers. We don't talk about sex buyers. We talk about clients, like you were in a, in a doctor's office or something. I think it's a marketing job. Mm. It's been very successful, particularly uh, in Australia. It's been very good to speak with you. Rose Hunter. Rose is the author of the book Body Shell Girl. Rose is a survivor of 10 years in the sex industry. You can also read a more recent essay by Rose at the ABC Religion and Ethics website. Thank you very much for joining us on the program, Rose. Thank you so much for having me. 
And that is the program for this week. Now, next week, especially if you were as intrigued as I was in our first story about China's attempt to influence politics in Taiwan via the Matsu movement, you'll be fascinated by this story. We're going to ask, can espionage be ethical because espionage relies on lying, deception, blackmail, sometimes even murder. So it is a big question. Can there be ethical espionage? That's next week. For now, you can find us at ABC Listen, where I'd love you to follow us. A big thanks to Hong Jang and Harvey O'Sullivan. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.